Hello, hello, and welcome to the Common Geeking Program. We are a book club style podcast where on each episode we discuss a different topic from our own geeky and nerdy perspectives. Uh, I am your host, as always, Jeff Levitt, and this week we're going to be taking a look at uh, Dungeons & Dragons, specifically the Eberron setting, and focusing on what's unique about that compared to the usual D&D style stuff. This time around I'm going to be joined by two fellow nerds who can introduce them themselves oh it is i ryan mossbarger it's been a hot minute everybody it's good to be back <laughs> hello i'm tamil chowdhury or chowder whichever you prefer that's it <laughs> i know i've said it many times but i'm gonna say it again i prefer chowder <laughs> it's good to, it's good to, it's good to be back chowder it's good it's to be not back. that it's not that time isn't a great name but chowder is such a good nickname it is. It honestly is an amazing nickname. <laughs> and a great television show. Anyway, yep, uh, <laughs> we're going to start off you by summarizing and discussing the topic, and then we'll end with a little handy-dandy rating fun. section where we decide if the topic today was worthwhile and enjoyable and shit. You guys want to go into it? Excuse me. Let me let me organize my million pieces of paper into a coherent note. Oh, my goodness. Excuse yeah, excuse so me. Ryan Ryan is excuse the one me. who brought us this uh, this topic excuse today, me. so he's going to kind of... That's about Dalcor. We don't need to get into Dalcor. motherfucker. Oh, boy, Warforged. <laughs> I guess we can start with... War- no, that's not adequate. So he's Should we talk about kinda... the Emerald Claw? God, Jesus, there's so much shit. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, beans, guys. There's too oh, much. Jesus. <laughs> So Ryan's going to kind of summarize the differences between regular D&D and specifically Eberron and kind of, you know, we, so I guess we should start off by saying we did, we did to research this topic, we played a little one shot in, in Eberron, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, it was we'll, the... We don't need to necessarily summarize that unless it becomes relevant, but. Yeah, it was just like the little starter adventure and the, uh, so the newest book that came out, Eberron Rising from the Last War, it has like a little short adventure at the end that we played through that's supposed to give you like a lot of the tone of the setting. All right, cool. Yeah. You want to give us the basics? Oh, hell yeah. I fucking really want to. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, I, uh, hey everyone, I'll be breaking down Eberron for y'all. And instead of blacking out and expelling, (laughs) expelling incoherent detail, (laughs) instead of expelling incoherent details of pretty much anything I can remember at you, like I did at Jeff and Chowder, (laughs) I wrote some of this out and I will read it thusly. So to get started, I'm going to talk about how the setting got started. So around, so 3.5 came out, uh, 3.0 came out around like 2000. And by yeah. like 2002, uh, Wizards of the Coast was looking for some like fresh new something. They Wizards had gone. Of the, Coast, the people yeah. who make Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Yeah. So they were looking <laughs> Wizards of the Coast. Uh, so they were yeah, looking yeah, for. Just, you know, not everyone knows this shit, Ryan. All right. <laughs> all right I, I know we know what the what what 3.5 refers to, but you know. Sorry. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons. So they were looking for like uh, a new direction. They wanted something. They wanted a new setting. They kind of felt like TSR's catalog, while like expansive, was had been done before. So they, instead of kind of like scrounging their own brains and like coming up with something, they decided to get the community involved. So they came up with a fan uh, a a, uh, a competition called the Fantasy Setting Search to create a setting for uh, third edition. Uh, like a, something like eleven thousand plus applicants uh, submitted one page like breakdowns of their world. From that list, over the course of a couple of months, they narrowed it down to three finalists who had to create a 100-page word world bible. 
Um, and from that, Keith Baker and his setting, Eberron, were chosen as the victor. God, could you imagine being the other two who had to write a hundred fucking pages to not get it? Well, and also they got, they do not have rights to that either. So they came up oh with a great goodness. idea and Wizards <laughs> owns even, that. Are you yes. fucking, that's kind of bullshit. Anyway, wait, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, who doesn't have, wait, they don't have rights to El- Eber- the t- Eberron? The, no, well, the, no. Two other, the two other finalists who didn't get yeah. chosen don't so have they... rights to their 100 page world bibles that they yeah. made and are not being <laughs> oh used. that's bullshit yeah that yeah. is super <laughs> so bullshit this is I, why I you should know... never enter competitions like this <laughs> so i do know there's one guy uh he wrote one he's the guy behind giant in the playground that's like his nickname and i want to say he was never able to unleash his but i do think some of the other contestants were i think they were able to work out a deal with like third-party publishers and wizards of the coast to get their stuff like out there but I haven't heard a lot about that stuff, so it could be good, could be bad. There was only three who had to do that, right? Well, it was like multiple stages. So there was like, I think okay. the midpoint was you would write a 10-page supplement that gotcha. would talk, that would expand out the world. I think there's only like 100 of those or something. But um, Gotcha. Um, so yeah, so Keith Baker and his setting, Eberron, were chosen. He worked for uh, he worked at Wizard of the Coast for like the next year or two, creating um, all the setting stuff, fleshing out the ideas, writing all the books. And in 2004, I think it was in June... The official release of the Eberron campaign setting was released. Um, and it was maybe a little bit divisive. Like, some people really liked it. Some people didn't like it. It is non-traditional fantasy. Um, and we're going to talk about some of these major differences. Uh, so Keith himself, he's been a very vocal supporter of his own work. And he has gone to <laughs> yeah, great no length. Shit. Yeah, <laughs> Well, he's, he's just, uh, he, even though, like, there has been a drought of support for it through, like, 5th edition until basically right now. Yeah. He's kept up a lot of, like, a dialogue with the community. And he's helped people work through their artistic problems. Like, people can... Um, like ask a DM him and he like, I actually did that very recently for something that I'm writing and he got back to me on uh, Twitter. Wait, you asked what? Of him? Oh, I asked a question. Uh, so I was oh. asking a very, like a question that uh, is like a little bit of a weird question that goes into the lore and he kind of like, yeah, sure. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, which maybe not the most helpful answer, but it was an answer. Nonetheless, Keith major conceit is that he wanted to take all of the existing pieces and parts of established D and D and work them into something without, inherently changing the rules or stats he wanted he didn't want to remix exactly but he wanted to take existing like uh he wanted to make a brand new setting from the ground up but looking at things a slightly different way i'll get into that a little bit more as we go through some of the main like points but really his his major thing is he wanted to change the internal logic of the world and how it existed to do this he had to create his own logic and the first thing he did is he wanted a closed cosmology so much like uh, second edition's Dark Sun, second edition D and D, which is like a a supplement that's completely different from all the other ones. It's more about psionics. It's really dark, and it's got like gods are very sparse stuff like that. He didn't want it to be fully connected to the greater cosmology of D and D, like Dragonlance, Greyhawk, all that stuff, Mystera, all the various and sundry settings, Forgotten Realms. They do have connections with the greater world. So like sometimes you'll see Dragonlance characters in Greyhawk. Sometimes you see Greyhawk stuff and Forgotten Realms. So, and there's also these really powerful, like not quite gods, but pretty close. So like beings like Elminster, Vecna, or any other, those kind of like weird kind of like weave through stories Mm -hmm. um, from various canons. He didn't want any of that because it kind of, if there's powerful beings like that, 
really honestly, if there's powerful heroes like that, why are your heroes doing anything? And if there's powerful villains like that, how do they have any possible chance against them? Right. So he wanted to be completely separate. He, and because of that, because it's kind of closed off, the way he kind of closed it off in the cos- in the greater cosmology, gods don't function the same way they do in, say, Forgotten Realms. Forgotten Realms, if you say, Helm, you know, strike me down if I'm lying, like, canonically, there is a chance that Helm could just fucking strike you down if you're lying. Gods are active fucking <laughs> right. forces in Forgotten Realms. Like, they're, it's undeniable. Right. Um, so he wanted them to be separate and farther apart. Like, the gods do not have direct influence on any of the things that are going on. Right. In like, if we Eberron. if we have gods in our world, it's more like that, right? Yeah. It's more based on faith. You right. have to like, believe in the god for it to, like, kind of work in a way, especially for, like, clerics and stuff. Yeah. Um, like, there's more so, deniability, so the then yeah. religious classes actually have to have faith that doesn't... You yeah, know, exactly. It has to hinge upon feasible proof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and because of that, uh, and it leads into my next point, alignment is flexible, and genetic evil does not exist. So what I mean by alignment is flexible, they're, uh, Eberron's all about the world of gray. Like, good characters do bad things, bad characters do good things. It just really depends on the inherent reasoning of what they are doing, not the act in and of itself. Yeah, and I I like that because, like, I I feel like the uh, alignment system in regular D&D is just just too limiting, you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of limiting, and it kind of just doesn't work. It works a little bit better in 5e than it does in previous systems where they had, like, a really rigid alignment structure. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... it's like even though you you know you can just uh you know do stuff that isn't uh, necessarily uh, uh aligned with your character's alignment you're kind of fighting uh, against it in a sense. Yeah. Like like there'll always be some person who's like that's not your alignment. I know, exactly, but he's a character yeah. who needs to do stuff. There's hard choices. You know, there's hard choices. It's never so clean cut. It's like, oh, save the girl or burn a village. Sometimes to save the girl, you have to burn a village. Like, it's that kind of complex alignment and morality that I think works in Eberron's favor. And that's why, honestly, I think they've actually simplified it down for 5e. Because in previous editions, if you wanted to be a monk, you had to be lawful. If you wanted yeah. to be a certain kind of cleric, you had to be good. Like, you couldn't be a bad life cleric. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I wouldn't even have a problem with that, but, like, you know, you end up with problems where people think in order to be a paladin, you need to be freaking Optimus Prime. Yeah, That's you, what it means to be lawful. You have to be, you have to be the stick in the mud. So right. when, when, like, you know, you can be lawful good and be kind, be kind of a hard ass. Or, exactly, yeah. 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 There's such a spectrum, and it, honestly, it could be, there's so many different things you could be in the realm of good or evil. So you could be... Um, So I think the best example is that evil doesn't necessarily mean you're uppercase evil. It doesn't mean like, say, say the guy down the street from your neighbor is evil. It doesn't mean he's plotting your death or he's going to slaughter your children. It might mean that he steals your paper in the morning and like he pisses on your rose bushes. But like (laughs) he's not going to murder you if given the choice. He's just a bad guy. And I think it's just kind of an asshole. Or Or maybe like the dude. Genu- genuinely believes he's doing good, even though yeah, it's he a pretty he's helping thing your bushes. So yeah. that gray area actually solves a major issue that earlier editions of D and D has. Three uh, third edition has a first level spell called Detect Evil. 
it's yeah. super it's like low one, not the <laughs> lowest level but basically the lowest level you have one class in anything and you have it and that leads to a question if the lowest level of magic basically you can detect evil why would there ever be an evil mayor why would there be an yeah. evil king why would there be a bad priest at the head of a large like like a city state or something like that right because it, take some... like normal D acts like you're the only person in the world with like yeah, if you're in we... a world that's full of superpowers why wouldn't the world be built around that yeah rather exactly than acting as if it didn't exist you know so, how Eberron kind of brings that back. That shit like, pisses yeah. me off about Harry Potter too. Like, yeah. why can they ever use magic to get in to break into the bank? Like, don't they have protocols against that? It's worded. It's worded against it. But yeah, it's not good war. It's just in case somebody really wants to break in. Right. In case <laughs> but, three children want to go do it, they can still find their way around because they know how to do magic and they're yeah. spunky. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what that, I think. That's a really good thing about uh, Eberron as a setting. It kind of allows like you can have an evil bank teller that might be stealing money but he's still like a functioning member of society if you scan somebody yeah for i mean or like even someone who just like doesn't break any laws or go or goes yeah. about their daily life but they're like kind of low-key racist like they're probably evil even if yeah. they're not you know <laughs> and it saves it helps narratively with a dm like you're, you can ha- play with evil characters but like say you're in a room and there's one poisoner and but yeah. in a historically like high fantasy setting, only one of those people is probably going to be evil. Right. So you can immediately know who the poisoner is because it's the only evil person in the room. Um, so kind of going off of that, uh, I mentioned genetic evil. And it's something that is becoming more and more like people kind of talking about it and kind of poking and prodding uh, Wizards of the Coast about it. But people don't like genetic evil. Um, like how certain com- races are just are always evil. evil. Yeah, that is yeah. super problematic. Always has been. Yeah. I mean, it, it really kind of stems through like various different rings and you can kind of sift through whatever you like. But the concept in most settings like Forgotten Realms is that some races are just evil. There might be right. exceptions, but they are exceptions to the rule. They are rarities. So by default, these races are either been corrupted in the past or as a race, they are influenced by a god or a greater planar power. Right. Great examples of this are gnolls or orcs. Orcs, uh, yeah. Almost always evil for evil's sake. Yunogu, uh, the kind of like god over orcs, he's like a demon prince, I believe. He makes gnolls just awful, fucking miserable monsters that eat and destroy. They have no positive influence on the world, whatever. Same thing for orcs, like maybe to a lesser extent. But, like, they're always going to be very ferocious and kind of barbaric because Groomsh wills them to be, and that's their god. So there's none of that in... Well, there's maybe a little bit in that in Baron. Like, an angel is going to be an angel. Like, a demon's going to be a demon. But there's also gray in that. Like, a demon can do good things because it wants to, you know, gain favor or it's trying to, like, bring about a prophecy. So things can be behind the scenes. Right. Um, the next big, big point, kind of moving away from gods and, like, cosmology, magic is widespread. So you could well, say, yeah. so Ryan, um, you know, not, not to just add to your, your, uh, your, mm. what's, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Spiel. Yeah. Spiel. Spiel works. But, um, I remember earlier when you talked about, like when you were explaining it to Chowder and I, the difference between like how orcs aren't evil, you said that it was kind of recontextualized as just like yes. tribalism and their, in their culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So he looked at them. So what we keep it did for a lot of this and I have a point later, but we can talk about it now is that he looked at the statistics that the creatures had. And then what would that also be good for? 
So I think the in 3.5, like, they were strong, and I can't remember the exact thing, but, like, they were a little less intelligent. Yeah, um, they're probably, like, it's probably, like, plus one to strength, minus one to yeah. intelligence or something like that. Yeah, they're, like, strong, and I think, I can't remember what 5e ones are, but, so he looked at that, and it's like, well, they're not just evil, like, in my world, I don't want them to be evil, but they're, they're definitely gonna be, like, passionate, they're more tribalistic, they're more, um, the, the way that their kind of, like, background works, I want them, to, you know, they're good in groups, but they're also, like, fierce protectors, they're good at being, like, paladins, they're good at being barbarians, they're good at being fighters, they're naturally strong, but they're not necessarily inherently evil. Right. So, like, a lot of the major orc tribes, they're either like kind of nomadic, like uh, nomadic tribes that kind of move around and they're, they tend to be like druids or rangers and stuff like that. Or he has like a big sect of orcs up where like this place called the Demon Wastes, which is kind of to the uh, northwest and Corvair, which is the main like continent. Um, and they're like literally the front line trying to keep demons from pouring out of the ground. Like they're paladins, like super firm in their faith, like super passionate about their religion. And they're like not quite zealots. They're good guys or good people. I don't necessarily say guys, but they're like fighting demons, like, like tooth and nail. So instead of making them like mindless barbarians that are at the will of like just raping and pillaging, they're like a sophisticated people that has like a culture. Yeah. Right. And there's more than just one type of them. Like there are different types. Like they're they're the sect that's up in the demon waste is completely separated from the one that's in like another part of Corvair because they're not just identified by their race, they're identified by their culture, which I think is a huge step. That's a that's another thing I like. Like something really bad fantasy writers fall into is that the race everyone in a singular race acts the same acts way. The same. Every, every yeah. elf is a is is like a snobbish uh yeah, exactly. na- na- is a snobbish nature lover every dwarf is obsessed with mining exactly that that's just not true in real life and also makes for kind of boring boring storytelling and yeah it's, it's lame it's a lame story and i like it too because it's like it it takes like the core elements of the practicality of like how you interact with these races and it and it largely keeps it faithful to like the original intent of it but then it recontextualizes in a way that's more like realistic and more like well-rounded and it allows Mm. for more variation so i think that it's 100 agree it's like it keeps it in the same context like back like the original intent because it's like you know you could largely say like oh if there's a society that like if like orcs for example are society that you know like values certain things then they might be more inherently um like privy to being manipulated by evil forces or blah 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 so like probably Mm -hmm. a lot of the times they do end up being on the evil side but like it's not because they're inherently evil it has to do with like other aspects of their culture which i think is like pretty interesting and it it, it, like it, it just recontextualizes it in a way that like keeps it true but also like makes it you know more nuanced Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance in Eberron. There, he, uh, Keith Baker is very big on culture. So even though you might be an orc, if you grew up in a major city far away from like the demon waste, you would have no connection to that culture. You, right. by definition, would be so like Sharn's one of the biggest cities. Like if you grew your entire life in Sharn, you would you would see yourself as a person of Sharn, not like oh I'm an orc of the demon waste, blah blah blah. So right. Would, so it's it's like cultural, not genetic. Yeah, it's cultural. It's all about culture, where you are, like how you're perceived. Um, so moving on to the next little bit, like one of the major differences, magic is widespread. Traditionally, I would, I would view Eberron as a high magic setting. Magic is everywhere. Society is almost built upon it in a lot of ways. 
Keith Baker himself says he doesn't like it to be called high magic. He likes it to be called wide magic. Because magic from like cantrip level to third level is very common. Um, it's everywhere. It's infused throughout people's society, their culture, technology. Um, once you get past their level, it starts to get rarer and rarer. Like once you get past five, you start talking about like legendary stuff. And especially once you get like level seven, that is like one, like maybe one person in a million knows how to do that sort of magic. And you as a hero are probably that one in a million. Hmm. That's um, interesting because, too, because you yeah. start off kind of on ground level with stuff. But you still can do things, but you can do things that a lot of people can do. And then you like kind of slowly but surely expand yeah. past. And that's, that's another big thing. One of the major conceits of Eberron is that like a lot of the big players in terms of power, like the world's most powerful druid is an actual tree and cannot leave from where he is sprouted. <laughs> Sorry, cannot. Uh, cannot leave. leave. Yes. Leave. <laughs> and then the most powerful yeah, <laughs> the most po- the most powerful cleric is uh like an eight-year-old girl that loses all of her powers when she leaves this like holy city like some of the best fighters are either like dead or potentially evil um so you are really the only force that has a chance against some of these higher level threats there is no like backup team there is no elminster there's no like greater like hero that's in the canon of like in forgotten realms there's a billion heroes that have risen up and fallen and they're in the lore and they're all over the place and for whatever reason they're gone this week and you're the one that has you you and your party are the people that have to take on vecna um they don't have a lot of that in Eberron. You are the force for good or evil, depending on your campaign. There, so with this uh, widespread magic, they've achieved like a pretty high technological level. It's pretty comparable, depending on how you want to play it, between like 1920s and like 1950s Europe. Mm-hmm. Like Art Deco, like the book, uh, the newest book is like has a lot of Art Deco inspired art. There are um, there's airships there are that are powered by elementals. They have. Uh, just regular seafaring ships that are powered by elementals. They have a the lightning train, which um, is powered by uh, various elementals, and it's it like it's very uh, connects all the most of the major cities on the continent yeah. of Corvair. Yeah, we had a, um, we had like a encounter on that lightning train, right? The, uh... Yeah, you guys did at the very end. Yeah, as it was about to like zip away, you guys got on there. Um, and so, and part of that, one of the reasons that magic is so widespread is that there's a thing called dragon marks and the dragon marked houses. So for whatever reason, there's this thing called the draconic prophecy. It's kind of like this underlying maybe plot thread you can put through your story. Uh, these things called dragon marks start showing up on very specific people. So for, for example, the mark of healing and the mark of hospitality, they showed up on halflings. And because they have these marks, depending on how like, big the mark is and how much power it has if like say you're a mark of healing like you just innately no matter what your level is in whatever class you can do like some healing or if you're in the hospitality one you can like make food out of thin air or you can make a place to stay out of thin air so like these dragon marks and these dragon mark houses have used this like fairly um for the most part pretty low level magic but because there are they have some numbers and they ability to replicate the magic fairly regularly they've been able to build up these like kind of barren like uh, robber baron houses that are able um they're kind of a kind of a weird not quite part not quite citizens of corvair which is the main continent but they're their own almost like entity city state of their own that's really based around um capitalism and um like 
hierarchy and stuff like that. So it's kind of a weird thing. You can have these robber baron-esque, like very 1920s, like standard oil type of characters that are like, I control all the healing in this city, monopolies and stuff like that. Another major difference, uh, planes. The different planes of Eberron are actually pretty active forces on the material plane. There's a thing called a manifest zone, which creates spaces where an influence from a plane can be directly felt. So um, Sharn is connected to, I believe, the plane of air. And because of that, uh, air magic works better. So flying is a little bit easier. Levitation's easier. And because of that, they're able to build up this city to be like over a mile high because of the inherent magic that's like suffused through this little small pocket in this region. That's cool. And the plane, I yeah. like how, I like how, you know, they take all the conceits that, that he's adding to the world and they like, he really explores like all the practical implications of like what that would mean. Yeah. You know? It uh makes me. It's a little random, but it makes me think of uh Young Justice, cause like really? okay, yeah, yeah, cause like Young Justice. Yeah. No, you, I feel it, you. Cause like you know, I I think what makes Young Justice so beloved is that it really thinks about what all these crazy superhero things, how it affects the world. Yeah, in, in, in a much deeper way, like right. Uh, what what would Earth's relations to aliens be beyond just we ignore them until they invade us. No, they, they have like, they have, <laughs> you know, Earth has diplomatic relations. Uh, su- superheroes have to like think about like larger geopolitical little issues. Uh, sidekicks are used as like, uh, like a special ops unit. Uh, yeah. and, yeah, yeah. And it like considers like hierarchy and like how people would react and how, and how like villains would adapt, and then how heroes would adapt to villains adapting to them, and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it takes not... in the greater situation, yeah, rather than just very acute little line of like this is the story I want to tell. It kind of surrounds it with all this. I mean, for lack of a better word, a little bit of fluff. Yeah, it kind of wraps everything around. Yeah. You know, and I, especially, I, you know, I think you're, I think you're onto something here, Chato, because it's like. I, I think, like, and, yeah, I promise I'm tying this back to, to Eberron, right? But, like, one of the things about Young Justice is nice that is, like, a lot of superhero content, you know, will try to, you know, make it more, quote-unquote, realistic, right? Like, a lot of the live-action stuff, right? But then it sort of feels like a sort of watered-down version of the original source material. But if something like Young Justice, it creeps, it keeps all the wacky, zany stuff that's so fun about superhero stuff, and then it, like, it contextualizes the world around it to make it feel more realistic because yeah. it's actually more realistic in the way that it operates not in the way that it's similar to our world and i think that's that's one of the nice things about eberron too is that like it it feels like its mission statement is to make D more realistic but it's not like sacrificing it, all the fantastical yeah. stuff about D&D. exactly yeah. it's not sacrificing all the fantasy stuff it's taking that fantasy stuff and like really going like wild with it and Go then ham. like it, yeah, going ham and exploring all the implications and keeping keeping those inf- those implications follow like a consistent structure so that it feels at the very least like realistic to itself if it's not realistic to the way our world operates, you know. It's yeah. like it's like, oh, if if I want the world to be different than our how our world is, I can't just like change the things in our world but follow the same rules i have to change the rules so they operate in the way that would make the world this way and i think that that's really like an intelligent way to go about it yeah yeah, yeah it, it's and, more work but the end result i feel is 
rewarding. It's richer. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and that kind of how it works too, because uh, Keith Baker stated many times that like things like manifest zones, which seem kind of abstract and they don't really talk a ton about it in the book, they're there for the DM to create an uh, like create an opportunity for the party. It's like, oh, how do I like? why is this particular place they're about to go into? Why is this the only place that has like a, a bunch of zombies floating around? Why aren't there other ones? Like, Oh, this one is linked to the plane of death. So there's like some inherent energy there that maybe they could even stop if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And like, why is this city so good for like the managerial like law? Why is this the city of law? It's like, Oh, cause it's kind of connected to a plane that is copacetic with like law or maybe against chaos. So it, it kind of like, it's something you can flavor in and it allows like it gives a tool for a DM to use. Be like, this is why this place in particular is different. Not just be like, because, um, and, uh, one of the last little bit on that part is the, uh, so planar powers are actually pretty active on the material plane too. There are demons that are like an active influence on Eberron Star and there's life. also, yeah, for sure. And also the plane <laughs> of dreams, Dalcor is actually a major like source of villain for Eberron. So the, uh, in, in Dalcor, they are trying to make sure that, um, the cycle that is like the dreaming dark remains in dreaming dark. Like, I guess every like 40,000 years, it shifts back between like the dreaming dark and something else. Um, something probably light if you're going to be as simplistic about it. And they are trying to like figure out a way to keep this like clock from turning back into like eliminating one of them and building them back. So they're like sending out emissaries on a material plane to like figure out how to stop it. Or if they can like corrupt enough people and take over enough people's minds, like maybe that's all they need. They just need an anchor. So there's like some weird planar stuff that I think is very different from what you typically see in some of the other settings. It's not just demons. There's like these kind of like weird dream outsiders that can like affect your game in very weird ways. The another pretty important point. So there's a couple of different points I'm going to make with this one. Uh, in the setting itself, Keith Baker keeps a lot of uh, he has a lot of detail, but they're big points that are just kept vague. So one of the major events um in Eberron for the typical setting, like the default setting is that like four years ago, there was a, there's like a hundred year major, super big war. It was spanned the entire continent. It was like a civil war. Everybody wanted to, it was over uh, who was going to ascend next to be like the overall King of Corvair. And it had been going on for a hundred years and it was only stopped because a nuclear level event a nuclear level like magical event decimated entire country sire which is like at the center of corvair the war had no victor only a decisive loser and nobody knows what happened they just know one day sire like mist started like pouring out of the ground and like started to alter kill and destroy anything connected like it just like started to spread out and it kind of like stopped kind of at some like various edges of sire and then like just stayed there so now there's this like whole country that was actually a really rich and beautiful country that has been like a hundred percent destroyed and nobody knows who did it and the only reason they stopped the war is because they don't know who did it like nobody wants to go to war with the country that can like make your entire civilization disappear overnight. So everybody is kind of like this cold war where everybody's looking at each other thinking, well, do they have the ability to do that again? Or do I have the ability? Like, I know it's possible now. Can I do that to them? And <laughs> Jesus. that's, yeah, well, yeah, that's kind of the setup. 
Um, and that's like a big mystery. There is no canon reason why hmm. they call it the morning. There is no canon reason why the morning happened. There's no canon reasons for a lot of things in Eberron. They yeah, want that, that, that sounds be... like something like where it's like, here's the setup. I'll let you fill in with your exactly. own details. Yeah. They want it to be any, so like the cause of the morning can be anything you want. It could have just been a rap and happen, a random happenstance. It could have been agents of Dalcor. It could have been maybe the Warp Forge, like found a way to create this devastation because it didn't affect the Warp Forged. Sounds like um, some fucking, uh, sounds like some fucking Ozymandias type shit to me. Kind of, yeah. It could have <laughs> been too. Like you could have had, like their dragons are a completely different kind of dragon in Eberron. They are a, they have their own like country called Arganesson. They're extremely intelligent. They're very powerful. They are the major force. Um, but they're like a hermit kingdom. They only interact in very subtle ways. And like you could play that. Like maybe the dragons of Arganesson were behind the morning. They are the most powerful force on this world. And like, what if they're planning for your country to be next? How do you stop? Like, what clues do you discover? Like, do you go into Sire post morning and like discover, see if you can find any clues of how they can't made it come about. Like if you could stop it, it's, it's like plot hooks on plot hooks on plot hooks, which I love. And because of that, so the, the standard setting, the actual like start date in the campaign guide says that it's about four years after the end date uh, four years past the day of mourning and two years since whatever they call the Treaty of Thronehold, which kind of like set them all up as independent countries. They all kind of signed a treaty together like, all right, we're not going to fuck with each other anymore. Because of that, it has no victor, just a really bad loser. So all these old tensions remain. It's a hundred year war. Like nobody, there was nothing decisive about any, vic- there was no victory. So there's refugees, soldiers without like who have been spent their entire generation in war are just like out and about doing something. So there's all these kind of like, there's political intrigue. There is the realities of post world war one or even world war two life like what do what does a country that is for the last hundred years who's done nothing but war what does it do afterwards Hmm. like what does it do with this large standing army that all of a sudden it doesn't need at the moment but it could need like next week you never know when like somebody's gonna attack you again and start up the old war so it has that kind of like in the background and then the major themes uh keith baker had in mind were pulp noir and swashbuckling adventures <laughs> so think indiana jones the maltese falcon and casablanca they're yeah. really good examples of a lot of the things he's trying to encapsulate if you if your basic forgotten realm setting is a knight fighting a dragon in a long forgotten treasure hoard eberron it's a dashing rogue fighting a game of wits with a dragon who is a master behind a mastermind behind a political assassination throwing <laughs> current international relations into chaos it's super dramatic it's really extra, but it's also fucking great. It's so much more fun because you fought the dragon in the cave a hundred times, but you haven't played chess with your Moriarty who happens to be a gold dragon. Right. Um, like well, it, it, playing chess with a dragon sounds like a fun time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, you're not having that Moriarty moment with the dragon who's like set up the next great war and you're trying to stop him. That's way more intriguing. You're just like one, it's a, you're playing like a game of wits with a dragon and two, like it allows you so many more avenues to affect the world yeah. as a whole. See, and I like, um, I like campaigns too that require you to come up with more clever solutions rather than just min-maxing your characters and hitting and fighting, things a bunch. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, one, like, I, I don't think, so one thing that it reminds me of a lot is, are you familiar, Ryan, with the Adventure Zone? Yes, Adventure Zone, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
So I don't think I I don't think they used like an official setting past like the first arc, but I I think it was just like a regular D and D thing. I don't think it was Eberron, but like yeah. a lot of the so for those of you who don't know, the Adventure Zone is a D and D real play podcast made by the McElroy brothers, and uh, so the the DM Griffin McElroy, right? He kind of crafted his own world past like their first quote-unquote arc in which they were just playing like a you know a starters like a fandolin i believe yeah fandolin a lot of the things in his world i think seem to operate a lot of the a lot of the same ways that they do in eberron where it's just like the magic the like the widespread use of magic means that 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 people have like used magic to create new technology you know there's trains there's like you know fucking robots and and moon bases and shit like that right it's like it's not just taking like oh here's our world plus magic and now let's pretend that you know everyone knew that it existed already but not really think about how deep those implications go. It's like, well, what would a world be like if magic existed in it for a long time? Like, how would it evolve in a different way than ours? And it's like, I don't know. It's just like an interesting concept that it's like, it's really taking that and kind of, you know, grounding it in in something that makes it seem seem more genuine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in, in Eberron, magic is like a science. It's replicatable. You know exactly what you're going to get when you cast this spell. Like, you know exactly how to, you know, take this various, you know, conglomeration of items and make it into a useful magic thing. The last little point that I had, I kind of already went over. So all the races mechanically are the same, but they're approached very differently thematically. So we talked about orcs. Another one is gnomes. Instead of being quirky, fey, kind of like forest-loving tinkerers, if you use their inherent gifts uh, in a different light, they're actually really good for like plotting, subterfuge, and assassination. They're small, they're dexterous, they're intelligent. So instead of it being you know a con- uh, you know some like forest gnome like conclave, you have the city state or I guess the nation of Zill at the end, which like their whole thing is like they have this huge secret police that like monitors everybody. Everybody's watching everybody. It's like a national, their national pastime is to like plot. Their legal system is very much like to the victor goes the spoils. If you can like trick somebody out of their money without technically breaking a law, you would get congratulated by the guards. You would not get taken to jail. (laughs) Like (laughs) you pulled off a big plot and then there's like, you are legally cool. That means you're a good gnome halflings uh chowder played a halfling in the little yeah. one shot that we did instead of being uh, instead of frodo fucking baggins you're genghis khan riding a fucking velociraptor um <laughs> yeah it's great there's nothing not to like about uh some of the changes that they made and i think one of the big things is when you're talking about like dragon lance versus greyhawk versus like mystera versus like forgotten realms they're all more or less generic fantasy i mean they're different and they have a lot of lore and a lot to bite into Overall, they are the same kind of fantasy that we've been playing for the last, like, 40 years, ever since D&D started. Right. Eberron is something truly different that looks at things a very different way, and I think it's very refreshing. And I, like, was blasé about Eberron, like, even a year ago. I, like, bought some books for it, and I read through it, and I was like, I don't know about that. And then I started to, like, watch some videos. I started listening to some of Keith Baker's talks. And all of a sudden, it just started to click. Like, this is dope. You can really... It's all about creating a story that makes sense in a world. You know, you've got all these various cultures. You can dig into it so many different ways. It's so rich. 
and it allows you to build so much on top of it. It's by far, it's becoming one of my favorite settings and I can't wait till I can run a game in it. Yeah. Like I'm having a similar reaction to this, uh, D and D supplement. I, uh, kickstarted a while ago that ended like finally like had it released its uh digital copy it's called uh witch plus craft i actually talked about it in a common briefing program episode it, what's cool about it is it takes inspiration from studio ghibli films oh that's nice. cool and the idea behind it is that magic is a more commonplace thing like anybody can do it and in fact it's used for more practical things beyond just combat or right. adventuring it's for artistry pottery uh, uh be, being a seamstress or seamster uh that that, that kind of stuff like uh crap, yeah uh, artisan jobs and uh stuff like that you know there are yeah. uh cantrips that are more useful for like a certain kind of job there's an entire like crafting system for That's cool. yeah and it's really cool and i would like to try something out in that but like uh, the basic gist is it's it it's intrigues me because it's imagining a world where magic is uh adopted by the common man like yeah, yeah. it's it's not just a few people it's not just uh like one in twenty or just like this ra- rare dude you come across maybe in a big city but like just just go over to your neighbor and he'll like use magic to do whatever and yeah that's that i mean that's that that's max of eberron too like yeah there's, yeah. Ar- there's magical artisans they there's something called mage rights um who just know like one or two couple spells they know like uh and then a couple of like rituals and like you'll have a mage craft who or a mage uh whatever mage crafter who's just about like making locks and he has the spells where you can just make locks really easily or like an artisan who can you know shape stone and stuff like that yeah yeah that's something uh, i liked about eberron too just like it's it's a part of the world like because like in a lot of uh fantasy settings they'll have magic but it's it's like implemented like oil into water you know it's it's not really mixing into the common person's life. It's just uh, like a invasion of sorts into their lives. Yeah, like, right. it just it feels alien, even though like magic is a thing. Because like I never right, like that. no one if, no one acts surprised that it exists. But also, yeah. there's just like a bunch of common systems that can be easily like overwritten by the existence of magic. Like they just don't have any like plan nobody for it. nobody considered the implications of how magic will apply into this yeah yeah which i mean it kind of drives me crazy because if you were a wizard even a low-level wizard and you can do or a cleric and you could cast healing or even like cure poison you are instantly the most useful person in the village yeah and yeah. like you would you would one either want to make money off of those skills or two you pass would want to skills ch- yeah, pass so those skills off people can yeah and if you could make money using those skills, why aren't there more people like, oh, I'll try and learn how to do this? Why is it just that, like, there's the one wizard off on the end of the in the middle of the woods by himself, like doing fuck all? Yeah, when he could be honestly making either a ton of money or helping a lot of people. I mean, right. making a lot of money, you could say that's being kind of evil. Helping a lot of people, you could say it's being good. So there's all this in between that you're missing out on just by having him off in the woods doing nothing. Right. Um, it reminds me a lot of how of. Um of like the avatar universe and specifically like legend yeah. of Korra, like how, yeah. They, yeah, you yeah. know, cause like, and I like it too, because it, it does kind of show both sides of it. Right. Where it shows like, you know, a world that's in war when it's like, Oh, a lot of them use their bending for like 
fighting war, and shit, yeah, yeah. right? Because they've been in a war for a hundred years. But then at the end of the series, when the war is over, and then like you know, fast forward like fucking fifty years or some shit. Yeah, fifty years, something. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I guess more like sixty, well, but in 60, Legend of seventy, I guess he had to yeah. die. Yeah. Anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> in Legend of Korra, right? Like they after the war, they've like hit an industrial revolution, and we see now like all these different ways of bending are now being incorporated yeah, into like their so society, cool. and it's like, and it's also interesting too because it's like, yeah, even in the original Last Airbender series, you see bending being applied to regular like stuff, industry. like yeah, like, like games like, or like like in Bossing Say there. The earthbending oh, is the used male for, system, yeah. for, for a male system. Uh, waterbending is used to, like, actually, for architecture in uh, in the North Pole because it's, it's ice. ice. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, like, a common theme throughout both Last Airbender and Legend of Korra is bending is an extension of the person, right. not just a tool they use. And Avatar always... Uh, tries to realize that like uh, right. these people aren't just fighting with it they're uh, it's a part of like how they live their day-to-day lives and then yeah. yeah and it's also interesting too because like you know if you look at our our own world just like societally you know with the change in custom and the advance of technology like just the human race in general becomes better at certain things and worse at other things and something that's interesting about like legend of Korra, right is that like in in Last Airbender, things that are like rare skills, like lightning bending and metal yeah, bending and exactly. shit, like, yeah. like metal bending wasn't even a thing, right? Until Toph came up with it. In Legend of Korra, those are more commonplace because, and this is what we mentioned earlier, right? The people who knew how to do those things after the war was over took the time to teach them to other people because they had useful ways. Now, yeah, like super, lightning yeah. benders, now lightning benders are like working in factories, right? To like make in power plants, and metal benders are like the police force who wear like armor and like use exactly, that. Like yeah. it just it follows the practical implications of it, and it and it also like thinks about how the world would realistically evolve over time. Which is something that Eberron does too, right? Because it's like, yeah. and Eberron kind of does it in a more, um, like reverse engineering sort of way where it says like, okay, well, this has all been around for a long time and we know that people have been powerful a long time ago. So how would that evolve up until now? Right. And like, what are the advancements in technology that they would have? Right. And it's kind of, I don't know. It's really, it's a really interesting way to take like hard magic systems and sort of like, you know, because I, I feel it, like in a lot of things, it's like, oh, either magic or science, where it's like, you know, magic is just like fun and flamboyant and does all these like crazy but sort of impractical things. And science is like, oh, you know, here's the science of it. Here it how Here's how it all functions. Here's how it works. But it takes magic and treats it like a science where it's just like, yeah, it can be fun and flamboyant, but it still would have real pl- practical implications yeah. and uses in the actual world, which is like. I don't know. It's super interesting, yeah. right? Exactly. Like the same like types of magic that keep, you know, the the uh, you know, uh, an airship afloat, like they bind they have like spells and bindings for like they bind water elementals I think to their sewers. So like it's constantly yeah. like pumping out water and it's it's able to pump oh, fuck, up water cool. some of these like <laughs> mile high cuz I mean some of these towers are like a mile high. So how do you pump right. up? It's because you have you instead of just having pipes, you infuse these pipes with magic, and then every once in a while you have like 
a little culvert that holds a water elemental that's actively like that's binded to it that's actively like pushing the water through and controlling the water it like it does think about some of the simple things like how would you get like Kasharn, which is like a major setting when it's probably where if i was going to make an adventure i would set it in is like new york city in the yeah. probably between the 20s and the 50s like how do you get all that stuff from magic like and i really like that they've gone through and thought it all out and it's it, like and reading some of the stories because uh like any wizards of the coast property they've also um done like novels and stuff like that just for reading and like they kind of work it all out through there like the city functions like this there's big elevators that take you up and down you if you're really poor you can take the stairs there's like these air gondolas that can take you from one level to the other they have poor parts of town they have rich parts of town they have exotic parts of town where like people come in from other places and it really it's i think just the way that they've built everything and it fits together feels right when in some fantasy settings like oh this is this town's all about like tinkering it's full of tinker gnomes and they make a bunch of like ships and all this other stuff it feels that way feels shoehorned in yeah they they all approach towns or settings like 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 the original star actually most of star trek treats it treats like entire planets this yeah. planet has one singular quirk and like that's gimmick. it yeah, yeah it's like a gimmick yeah. yeah and doesn't think about like how that would actually fucking work yeah. and you know there <laughs> yeah, there yeah. is a reason for that like it'd right. be kind like if you're only spending one episode on the planet there's not really a point in having an entire built out in-depth lore to it so right you know. and like there's there's value to that too because it's like in in the case of star trek right like the gimmick of each like planet right is to bring up a certain like philosophical implication yeah that exactly. puts you outside of your normal realm right so it's like then they can focus in on like a on like a piece of philosophy but it's like yeah okay practically right like that society wouldn't make any fucking sense right but it does serve a purpose oh, for the episode you yeah, know it makes me think of the first season of next generation where they just find space space irish people <laughs> oh, man. have you guys seen that one i can't remember the name but yeah it's so, watched, I've watched it's so little, dumb very like little that's... star trek <laughs> and, and it's like and it's like you know those first two seasons of next generation were just really it's bad. Called, it was yeah. up a long ladder so is an 18th episode oh it's a second season yeah like it's incredible what a jump in quality second season two and season three is, you know, like, yeah, yeah it's like night so and day. weird. But yeah, it's this crazy thing where it's just a bunch of space Irish. And I guess it does pose the question, like, for whatever reason, they could fuck real good. And like their <laughs> sister colony. No, it really comes down like yeah, yeah, these yeah. Irish people could fuck real good. But their their sister colony that I guess they split off from couldn't fuck at all. So the way that they um, they're all like based off cloning. So how they get this, like, solve this issue is they get the people that can fuck real good to the people that don't know how to fuck at all, and then they just tell them to fuck. <laughs> Sometimes. My goodness. It's, it's hilarious. I, I feel like sex ed would have sufficed, but okay. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess there just wasn't enough of them, and they were so close to each other, like, genetically, that they had to resort to cloning. They couldn't have sex with each other, otherwise they'd be, like, inbred or something. Um, but yeah, it's so stupid. That one is a bad one, but it it does give a good philosophical argument for like what to do if one fucks too much or fucks too little. Uh, 
Yeah, that yeah. that classic old, you know, yeah. uh, dilemma, <laughs> that, philosophical that classic, dilemma. The classic philosophical dilemma of what to do with fucks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's probably a good place to, uh, I mean, even though that's ending on talking about Star Trek rather than uh, Eberron, I think you, we get the idea. Right. Man, this episode uh, had fucking everything. You listeners are fucking lucky. We talked about Dungeons and Dragons. We talked about The Last Airbender. We talked about Star Trek The Next Generation. And we talked about Irish people. And we talked about fucking. And Young Justice. Oh, Don't forget Young Justice. Oh, yeah, Young a, little Justice. Bit of, a little bit of the DC universe. That's there. a lot of bang for the buck. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for the free buck. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for a very, uh, very practical and you know well thought out discussion. Thank you. I enjoyed uh, yelling about Eberron. <laughs> now we're going to be moving on to the rating section, where each of us are going to rate the topic on a scale from one to ten. And what are we going to do? Scale from one to ten. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Ryan, do you have any good ideas? You know more about Eberron than I do. Oh, uh, one to ten dragon shards. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Why not? It's a little boring, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but okay. Well, I don't know what an ex- uh, a Warforge, Kalistar, uh, a Quari, one to ten Quari. Let's just do fucking dragon shards or one to ten cities blown up to create a cold war. Or uh... Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go with that. One to ten cities blown up to create a cold cold war. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm more interested because... Ryan, you obviously are into this, you and you brought this topic. I do want to hear from you, but I would like to hear from Chowder first, actually, on this one. Chowder, how uh, would you rate the, the setting of Eberron on a scale from 1 to 10 cities blown up uh, <laughs> to create a cult war? Technically, it's countries blown up. Countries, countries blown up. Sorry, yes. Alright, uh, I would give it 7 out of 10. It's, it's really good, uh, and maybe if I experienced more of it, my opinion would go up, but, yeah. uh, Oh, from where I stand, it feels like a lot of, like, uh, speculative fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, what have you, is moving in the same direction Eberron is. Yeah. So, so it's not necessarily unique in that regard. But that being said, it's still really good. I, I like a lot of the concepts it's playing with. I like that it treats race more with more nuance. I like that it doesn't have a binary good-evil, lawful, uncriminal... Little system going on. I like the twist they put on, like classes and races. Uh, I just like the setting, so you know, I think seven is a good solid number, and I will leave room for it to get bet, get go up uh, if I ever experience more of it. There we go. Fair enough. All right, Ryan. Oh man, you know I be. I'm like 10 out of 10. I love it. And I wasn't a fan immediately. I thought it was a little wishy-washy. I thought it was like uh, steampunk, um, which I'm not a big fan of like steampunk. Um, it's more Magitech. Uh, and it it's just like refreshing. The more you read about it, the more you learn about it, the more thought you know that the writers put into it. And it's just like, honestly, having, I think one of the biggest things for me was having like I was listening to something that Keith Baker, because he has a podcast too, and he was talking about like, you're not, you know, like one of his breakdowns of like, you're not evil because of where you were born or like who you were born to. You're evil because 
things either happen to you or you decide to be evil. Right. Like, you can, it's so much more of a rich story, as he's explaining. It's like, it's so much more of a rich story to, like, create a character that became evil because of X than, yeah. oh, he's orc, so he's evil. To, co- to quote I think- Mewtwo, <laughs> it's not the circumstances of one one's birth that determines who they are. It's what they choose to do with the gift of life. Hell yeah, yeah exactly. throw a little bit of Pokemon yeah. in there at the yeah! end. <laughs> We're <laughs> so just yeah, covering so, all of our big bases. Yeah, I love that shit. I think it's great. I think it's pretty enlightened. Um, and I did like the fact that it was more culturally based. I just think some of the setting stuff, like sometimes I know as a DM, I just want magic to be fucking everywhere. Sometimes it's so yeah. boring to have like a little town, like Podunk Town, that's got like maybe one wizard and there's nothing fucking going on. Yeah. This gives you so much to throw at your players. Yeah. There's airships, there's huge cities, there's magic that's like big and small that you can throw at them. So it doesn't have, you, if you want to give them something, it doesn't have to be some crazy fucking magical item that does plus three damage damage you're like oh this this combed like you put it through your hair and it makes your hair smell good like <laughs> that's the type of things that Eberron is built yeah. on just little quirky yeah. items yeah no you might really like uh witch witchcraft then because it, it's full of stuff like that too like but yeah uh, so wait jeff jeff what did you think yeah i think what's I'm, your dealie yeah I'm, I'm landing about the same place as chowder probably a seven or maybe an eight out of ten uh i think yeah like i i really like you know, I've said this multiple times in the episode. I like really practical sort of uh, systems like Young Justice or like Avatar or like Eberron that that take a fantasy sort of setting and take these like fantastical elements and make them more realistic in the way that they operate rather than, you know, dulling them down to make them more realistic. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate those qualities of Eberron. Um, what, and one thing in that regard that sort of confuses me, which is why maybe I wouldn't rate it a little bit higher, is, like, I feel like it doesn't quite have a good enough answer for, like, why the player characters then suddenly become so powerful. Like, I like the philosophy of, like, oh, you know, you're the ones who are really going to be solving the problems, right? But it would feel a little bit weird for the entire world to be built up like this practical system and then have your characters very quickly advance from being, like, you know, ho-hum nobodies who know any sort of kind of magic that you, your mother and your sister know to, like, oh, now suddenly, like, three adventures later, we're starting to get really powerful. It seems like... There would need to be some sort of story justification to make there that link. There is some story justifications okay, okay. for that. So uh, I don't well, want to go yeah, too we far don't, into we it. Yeah, we don't need to get into it. But like, it's nice to know that that's the thing. But like, you know, I was just that like that was like the one quality of it that kind of made me raise an eyebrow because I was just like, well, that doesn't sort of seem to fit within the whole design philosophy of it. So it's it's good to know that there's some more uh yeah. answers there's definitely ways like you could weave that in for sure yeah like why you guys in particular are the ones that seem to be getting so much more powerful yeah um, and i like sure. i agree with chowder like i know that eberron you know is a little bit older than like us talking about it now and we're talking about because it's kind of having a resurgence right but like yeah like even if it might have been one of the the earlier things to to do this by now it's like not as unique to have a world that's sort of set up that way i think there's like a lot of appreciation for like the internal logic of of fantasy setting which is why things like which is why things like the adventure zone exist where it's like where it basically follows the same kind of you know the same kind of framework where it's just like yep lots of fun fantasy and now this is the implications and how it actually operates within the world so yeah faux show all right 
I think that is just about going to wrap it up for us today, folks. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Common Geeking Program. Again, I've been your host. My name is Jeff Levitt, and uh, you can find me... Oh, boy. Yeah, I've got an Instagram. It's uh, things I wish existed, and there's a dot between each word. Um, I post, like, a lot of art stuff there. I'm getting my MFA right now, so I've been making a lot of good, good art shit, and that's that's kind of where I post it. Um, I've got a YouTube. There's not much on there. Uh, I've been joined by ryan and chowder would you guys like to give out your own handles or places where you can be uh, found yeah i'm uh, i'm on instagram uh and i can't remember what i'm on instagram but on twitter i am uh <laughs> ryan underscore mossb you can also hear me on another podcast that uh the common geeking program kind of puts on which is dice populi and I'm an active. I'm usually on their Twitter feed and yeah. Their, speaking uh, of D and D, right? <laughs> Instagram feeds, yeah, for show. Uh, so yeah, if you want to like reach out to me there, those would be also work. Chowder, uh, yeah, I'm Tamil Chowdhury or Chowder, whichever you prefer. Uh, and I, you can find me on Twitter at Tamil Chowdhury. Uh, yeah, uh, that's about all I got to say. Ciao. <laughs> Fair enough. Hell yeah. <laughs> Keith Baker lives forever. (laughs) All right. And uh, our next episode will air on the third Friday in February, which is... Oh, that's sad. It's not the 14th. It's the 21st. The 14th is the second Friday in February, which makes sense because weeks are seven days long. Uh, (laughs) So our next episode will air on the the 21st of February. Um, And anyway, thank you all for listening and sharing and subscribing and everything else. And we'll uh, talk to you next month. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Common Geeking Program is hosted by Jeff Levitt, joined this episode by Timel Chaudhary and Ryan Mossbarger. The episode is sponsored by January 3rd, the day that threw my groove off. The podcast is created and produced by Colin Ketchin and Jeff Levitt, and features original music by Colin Ketchin. This episode was edited by me, Timel Chaudhary. We'd love for you to stay engaged with us on social media at Geeking Program or by using hashtag CGP. If you want to know more about us and all of our other projects, head to commongeekingprogram.com. Stay in touch, stay tuned, and as always, thank you for listening to this podcast. Ciao! Peter picked a peck of pickled peppers.